there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what business development looks like inside an enormous tech startup, I don't even know if it's still a startup, but whatever. This is the episode for you because my next guest is the vice president and global head of business development at LinkedIn. And he's been building and investing in tech startups for the better part of 25 years. But before I introduce you to Scott Roberts, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays. And it has unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Scott Roberts, Vice President and Head of Business Development at LinkedIn, where he's worked since August 2007. When Scott joined LinkedIn, the LinkedIn network was at around 13 million people. And today it's at over 700 million members. And its revenue was at about $30 million. And it recently clocked in at $8 billion. The role of Scott's team is to create and scale partnerships and programs that enable LinkedIn's product teams and its businesses to maximize the value that LinkedIn delivers to its members and customers. And we're going to be digging into that in this episode. As a member of the product executive team, Scott also participates in all product and strategy reviews, and he's been a close collaborator with the corporate development team, and he's been involved in nearly every acquisition that LinkedIn has done over the past decade. Prior to joining BizDev at LinkedIn, Scott worked at Yahoo as the Director of Business Development and Business Management for four and a half years. And as a private investor in tech startups, Scott has enjoyed working with and supporting passionate entrepreneurs at a whole range of companies, including Rakuten, Tracelink, Ripple, Wealthfront, Ginger, Aura, Curated. I mean, so many. You just got to check out his LinkedIn profile to see all of the companies that he's invested in. Scott, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your half-calf and ready to go? <laughs> Still caffeinated and excited to be here. Well, because we're also doing this on video, we're not necessarily going to air the video, but I can see Scott. I can see his coffee mug is empty. Oh, the <laughs> poor guy. I wish I could no, I wish I could top you off there. Uh, it's okay. Well, we know you are an early riser because we started off at what the equivalent would have been 7 a.m. on the West Coast. And I also know that coffee is not usually a part of your morning routine, but in honor of doing a Time for Coffee interview, 
you blew the dust off your Nespresso maker and gave yourself a little coffee. You're usually a tea drinker. Let's learn a little bit more about you, Scott, before we dig into specifically what you do as the vice president and head of business development at LinkedIn. Why don't we kick things off with a bit of a 101, a higher level understanding of what your team does, what its mandate is. So what is the mission of the business development team at LinkedIn? So the team is focused on trying to identify and establish relationships, partnerships for LinkedIn to engage in that can help us combine or connect our products to other companies' products and offerings. And by doing so, trying to drive more value for our members and for our customers. Besides those partnerships, other things that we participate and help drive are an understanding for LinkedIn of the landscape around us. So LinkedIn has a consumer dimension to it, obviously going to linkedin.com and the professional network that we've created. And there are other experiences that professionals have, whether or not it's other online networks they participate in or productivity tools they use. And so what we're trying to do as a team is help try to understand, in some ways, translate for the rest of the company, whether it's our product team or our executive team, try to help them understand what's happening in the industries around us to then come back and, and help us define our own strategies, whether or not we should evolve and build new products whether or not we should create partnerships, which is the core of what my team does, or in some cases, thinking about acquisitions that would augment the things that we do. But at the end of the day, we're trying to drive more value and connection for our members and our customers by doing that. In our Espresso Shots interview, which we just completed, by the way, check out show notes to see if Scott's Espresso Shots interview, in which we dig into how to break into business development for our young listeners. You mentioned that although you've technically worked at LinkedIn at a single company for 13 years, you actually feel like you've worked at least at five or six different companies during the time you've been at LinkedIn. Why is that? I think the very nature of being a part of an organization that's evolved and grown so much. You mentioned early on the the metrics, the, the numbers, right, that we've grown over 200 fold, whether or not it's the member base, the revenue. And certainly when I joined, I was probably one of the first 100 employees at the time. And now we're probably 15,000 or so. And so that type of transformation, as much as the logo on the business card or on our site is the same, what is so different is how we're structured and what we're focused on and which business lines that we're in or what products we've created. But from a structural standpoint, joining a company with 100 people where you look around and you literally know every single person and you know what they do. And now, as much as we're not in the office as much, but when I would walk around the office, I've got a good memory for faces, but it's really hard to keep up when there are thousands and thousands of people. And so I think of this as also different phases of growth. And so at one point, we were more of a real startup and trying to figure out our focus. And there was also different leaders over different time periods. And there were chapters, if you will, to the book of how do we go from startup mode to understanding product market fit for both 
our consumer experience and our different lines of business. And then going through hyper growth phases, which are just, you're growing so fast because you've hit what we call product market fit. And then becoming a public company, what are the things you need to do to achieve that and to get to that point? And then managing through being a public company. Several years ago, we sold the company to Microsoft. And so that was a different process as well. And certainly now living through COVID and the impacts of the pandemic, it's just each couple of years, something new, whether or not it's as extreme as the pandemic or, or less extreme, it just creates the context for a different version of the company. I'm sure that's what keeps it fresh for you and why you've sure. stayed. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that for me personally, it's really interesting to have the ability. I mean, LinkedIn has multiple lines of business. So it's not just one area that we're really good at. We actually have multiple dimensions. We have our own ecosystem between the consumer side. So the people who come to LinkedIn to get insights and find opportunities, but then the lines of business we've created on top of it. So for me, not only has that evolution and growth created a more dynamic environment, just there's a lot of different dimensions to what we do, which keeps it super exciting and challenging. So what are your responsibilities as the head of BizDev at LinkedIn? Yeah, so I think back to the mandate of the team, which I shared, I think that for me, there's a few things really trying to help think about the future opportunities for LinkedIn to extend what we do for our members and our customers. It's to help guide and manage the team that I'm responsible for, who's actually implementing and doing the work of partnerships. I think the part that I shared before about what we call the landscape insights, the understanding of hey, what's happening, what's going on around LinkedIn in in the various industries that we play. It's how do I help us understand and evolve our understanding of what's happening? And in many cases, helping manage the relationships between LinkedIn and those organizations, because we're not really a young startup anymore. We're a large established company aligned with an even larger organization of Microsoft. So it's trying to help understand the, the chess pieces out there in the industry and the people that are helping run those organizations. How large is your team and how many direct reports do you have? So I think our global team is probably about 55 or so. And that's obviously a lot of those people are here in the U.S. We're based in the Bay Area, but we have we have people in Asia, across Japan, India, Singapore, Australia, and EMEA. We've got folks in Germany and Dublin in London, in France, and in EMEA in Brazil. So we have a real global team that's spread throughout the world, which again, is another dimension of making it quite interesting, right? Because we're trying to also understand how does what we do as a company translate literally into different cultures and different geographies. So we're doing this interview in the middle of September. There really isn't a typical day, I guess, other than one that's spent in your home office now, but what was your, what was a typical day like before you were stuck at home and what is it like now? Well, I mean, I think that it used to be, and in the Bay Area, there's two primary offices. I know our global headquarters is down in Sunnyvale, California, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley. I live in San Francisco, so that afforded me an opportunity to have a you know, an hour plus drive down the highway in my mobile office, luckily. So a lot of what I do is can be handled through calls and voice calls. 
But then my main office was in San Francisco, which again, I think we've been super fortunate at LinkedIn in terms of having a great in- corporate environment, an environment that has been very supportive of just a very, it's a great place to be, quite candidly. And so I think the mix there of I'm a part of what's called the product exec organization. So the head of product, which was Ryan Roslansky, who's now our CEO, and now Tomer Cohen, who runs product. That team really is the team that helps create and evolve LinkedIn's product and its offering. So being a part of that group has been an extremely rewarding and fulfilling, trying to think through and share where we are and managing both the metrics of where we are, but also thinking about how we evolve that. So participating in that group and then having my team, I will answer your question, which is how many direct reports. I want to make sure I get this right. I probably have, I think, about seven direct reports, which is a lot of folks. It's great to ensure that I'm understanding and keeping on top of the major evolutions and developments of the team. So once you would get into an office, either the one in San Francisco or the one in Sunnydale, what would a yeah. typical day look like? I wouldn't say we're a dominant meeting culture, but there's certainly throughout the week different team meetups, whether or not it's the product exec team that I'm a part of or the leadership team of the business development team, which is the team that I run. I think that in any different time, there's there's certainly meetings that are cross-functional in nature when we talk about member value, when we a weekly meeting where we talk about the state of the product, the state of the various different elements of the product and people providing updates and input as to how that's going. And that's a very cross-functional group. There's also one version of that for the customer side of things. But besides that, I think it's engaging with teams to check in on their strategies to help them at times craft their strategies. And so oftentimes working sessions, when we were in the office, I was a big fan of walking meetings, walking one-on-ones. So getting out of the office and even being in a city like San Francisco, there's a few places where there's kind of parks that you can walk around in. And to me, that always is a little bit more energizing than sitting inside even a great office. Like we have a really nice, terrific office space, but To me, the difference between being on the move, being outside, engaging with folks, that to me was certainly super important. But also, I think that, and I think that as a culture, we've tried to avoid overdoing one-on-ones or overdoing recurring meetings, but trying to find quiet space or quiet time for reflection. Because I think that so much of the world that we're engaged in, it's not only thinking about updating things or where are we in a process, but it's actually about how do we get free space to think about the art of the possible? What is new? What's next? And sometimes that's just really the ability to do our best work, I think. When I see a calendar that's back to back, my heart sinks a little bit. And I think especially now, which is the question of how is that different now? Again, my home office is a difficult replacement for the vibrant office that I was in with LinkedIn before. So we moved from the kitchen to the living room to the office. And when the the air quality or things like that accommodate, we go outside or go for walks and really try to recreate some of those things. And I've also started to do social distanced walking one-on-ones with a few people on my team. And that's obviously a little bit harder to pull off, but I think it's important to keep that human connection and maintain those relationships, which you know, Zoom is fine or Teams or Skype, whatever you're using can be, it's certainly better than calls. But I think the difference between 
being in person, really understanding how people are doing. And that's, I think, something that I think we're spending a lot more time on, which is trying to ensure people are taking care of themselves. It's a hard time for many, and we're just trying to make sure that people feel supported. Well, one of the things that I think might be surprising to some of our young listeners, who knows, is the fact that LinkedIn is so much more than just a place to connect. And I think that's at the heart of what your team does, is thinking of all the different pathways you mentioned, products that can bring value to your members. Could you give us an example, Scott, of a product that involved a partnership that your team facilitated? Yeah, happy to. And it's interesting hearing you talk about LinkedIn being so much more than just connecting. I can recall actually when it was just that when I joined 13 years ago. And it's funny because you can go back and actually see the interface and what LinkedIn used to look like. You can search for it. We have presentations and formats about that. But back when I started, it really was a place where it was your online resume and an opportunity to connect whatever that meant at the time. And so those two things of establishing your identity and then finding people that you have a connection to or a relationship to in a professional context, that really was the extent of, of what LinkedIn was. And what was super exciting and interesting and candidly quite challenging to pull off is a partnership that we created probably in the 2009, 2010, and into 2011 timeframe with Twitter of all companies. And so in many ways, LinkedIn was much more of a company around identity And Twitter was much more a company about content sharing and more of this idea of you've got a a rich feed, if you will, of activity. And so back then, we we created a relationship and a partnership with Twitter that enabled people to cross-post, to bring in their feed from Twitter and the, the activity feed of the work that they were doing or the stuff they were sharing on Twitter onto LinkedIn. And what that enabled and what that actually opened up for LinkedIn was a certain vibrancy as opposed to a more of a static experience of, okay, you have your profile. The only activities maybe you're doing is connecting with people. It actually brought in and started to bring in content into LinkedIn. And so what once was pretty static became live with a the feed of activity. And over the years, we we kind of changed that relationship with Twitter. And what was actually very helpful and useful for LinkedIn is that we started to train people that actually LinkedIn was a place where you had your own feed of activity. And what we've seen over the years is a lot more activity of people sharing, whether or not it's creating posts, whether it's sharing an article. But that, I think, is something that was really a foundational partnership and relationship that changed the very nature of LinkedIn and the trajectory of LinkedIn. And so what we do now from that basis We built deeper relationships with content publishers who started to see LinkedIn as a great platform for very good, clear, professional context and discourse. So a little bit more of a focused arena and place for people to share things about business. So not having personal content was actually very much value because people were there for business. And it became and has become a very rich place for showing up in many ways on a daily basis to consume content, whether or not it's content that publishers have put in. We also have a terrific editorial team run by Dan Roth and a growing team on his side of helping curate 
and create content that's super relevant for our member base. So the transformation of LinkedIn from a static place where you would simply just create your profile and then create connections and relationships with people now has so many other dimensions to it. Not to mention the fact of things like our learning business. We acquired a company called lynda.com many years ago, and that has actually become an incredible source of opportunity for our members who are trying to refine and evolve their skills to be better in the jobs that they're playing in or help them access uh, greater opportunities. And so when we think about the mission for LinkedIn of connecting our members with opportunity, historically, that's been pretty focused on at first, maybe just opportunities with connections and relationships, then opportunities for jobs, and now opportunities for learning. And so it's been incredible to see that. And in many ways, there's always, for the most part, usually some dimension of a landscape or an ecosystem that exists where we need to participate with that ecosystem, whether or not it's making it attractive for publishers to participate and share content into LinkedIn and make sure that they're seeing value in participating in that or in our learning business, understanding the different products and services that companies and members use to access and use that. So when we think about the partnership ecosystem or the types of relationships, there's been an incredible evolution of that over the, the many years that we've done and evolved LinkedIn. And it continues to be exciting and certainly no shortage of things to try to manage. Fantastic. I want to let our listeners know that Scott just mentioned LinkedIn's own newsfeed. You, my listeners, can listen to episode 202 with George Anders, who is an editor, a senior editor at large at LinkedIn. He's also the author of the most amazing book that I have footnoted, pull from constantly, that is entitled, You Can Do Anything. George is great. George is amazing. Episode 202. And so big shout out to George. Before (laughs) we flash back to when you were in college, Scott, I'd like you to share your insights about how best to network. You talked about how this is the essence of LinkedIn. This is where it was when it started back, I think it was in 2002. You joined in 2007. And it's a big pain point for a lot of young people, a lot of older people too. And it's why they go to the LinkedIn platform. What advice do you have to offer our young listeners about how they can best leverage LinkedIn to help them build meaningful professional relationships. What I'll try to also do is answer not only how do you leverage LinkedIn, but how do you go about and think about networking? Because I think LinkedIn is a tool. LinkedIn is a network. LinkedIn is an environment and it has incredible value, but I think it has to be put in the context of what are you trying to accomplish and what is your mindset? And what is your approach more broadly, more holistically? Because it's not just going to be, hey, go on LinkedIn and search for companies and just send invitations to people you don't know. I think it starts with how do you think about your network and what does that mean to you? And look, to be honest, I don't think I was so deliberate when I was getting out of college. I may have had more of a social orientation where I was comfortable with those things, but First of all, thinking about your social and your professional network as 
and certainly on the professional side, is a valuable lifelong asset that you create and you build and you nurture and you develop, I think is an important starting point. Because I think with that, just like if you invest money over time or you save and you put things away, it's the concept of how do you value that? So I think that I just want to make sure that people have a certain mindset about your relationships. Your network is extraordinarily valuable and can drive a lot of support and value to you. So I think starting with that, taking it seriously, thinking about it. And so then the question of like, well, what do you do? How do you start? And that's a hard thing. It's not easy. Like if you don't have all these relationships, but keep in mind more for the most part, whether or not if you're going to college and you and you have friends that you know, that's a starting point. The people that know you, your family, your extended family, that uncle who's been working in something you don't really understand, starting with the places and with the people who are going to have the warm introductions. That I think is an important place. And it could be, hey, you know, obviously you're in with your friends and you're all trying to make your way and start your careers. Great. Connect with them. Not a bad idea sometimes to understand what are the parents of your friends? What professions are they in? And it's okay. I don't think it's there's anything wrong with it. Just saying, hey, I understand that your your mom is a marketing person or your dad might be a lawyer or whatever it is. And the more you know them, if you've come across them, which is also be a good guest, <laughs> be respectful, do the dishes, do whatever it takes to make a good impression because those things matter. And when you invest in relationships, which is a different topic, but it's make sure you are putting things in the bank, the relationship bank. Try to be of service. At a minimum, be respectful and be thoughtful about when you're asking people for their time. But starting from a place where people want to help you, where they like you, they care about you. From there, you can start to then build. And this concept of degrees of separation. So say you do talk to Aunt Jane, who's a marketing person at a company, just start to understand what they do. And then you might ask, say, hey, do you have one or two people that you you might recommend that I talk to? And it could be someone maybe more junior or younger in the organization at that same company, but leveraging that relationship to someone that might be of more close value to you or be more informational to you. That to me is the process you start going through. But once you start building that, then you can start thinking about the companies that you're interested in or the functions that are of interest to you. And then using LinkedIn as a place to do research. And if you are gonna reach out to people that you don't know, really it's important that you do your homework. I get a lot of outreach of people wanting to talk to me and having conversations. I would encourage, don't reach out to someone like myself and say, hey, I want to work on your team. That's a little forward, a little presumptuous. But if you say, hey, this is who I am, or I listened to your podcast, or I saw this article that you wrote, or I see that you're involved in these companies, that to me sends a message that you're actually being thoughtful, that you're actually not just doing something that's easy, you're actually putting your time into. And I do my best to accommodate different people, whether or not it's giving them 15 minutes of quick conversation, because I try to pay it forward or give back. But like anything else, or maybe not like classes all the time, you may fail more than you're going to succeed. If you reach out to 10 people, you may get two or three people, depending on who you're going after or what the temperature of that connection is, you may get a low hit rate 
of, of people willing to do that. But you know what? Focus on the two or three that you get and celebrate those. Don't let the other ones hurt your confidence or be demotivating. Just realize this is hard stuff. And over time, it gets easier. And then also, and this is, I think, there's a concept of reverse mentoring, which is a bit of a different concept, but it's like you have something to offer as a young professional, as a former student, depending upon who you're talking to, you might be talking to someone like myself who's working at a company that's trying to make meaningful products and offerings to, to students as well. You can give your opinion about what you think about our product, or if you're talking to someone and their product, you can you know, get feedback or give feedback with those people. And so showing up and always trying to think about what can you offer in that conversation is, I think, something that is an important concept to keep in mind over time. Because again, it's how do you feed your network? How do you feed those relationships with value? Not just showing up saying, please help me or I need a job. And that, I think, is sometimes it's inevitable sometimes because I think that trying to get your start, you may not feel like you have as much to give. But keep in mind, I think you do have a lot more than you think to give. Oh, fantastic. And I think Scott is giving you a master class right now in how to build a truly authentic, valuable network. And it involves approaching your relationship building through LinkedIn or in the analog fashion by doing your homework. Think about how you go into an exam. You don't just show up. You've studied. You've read the textbooks. You've maybe done some additional reading and went to office hours and talked to the professor. That's the way you need to approach reaching out to someone like Scott. You want to make sure that it's going to be a fit and that you're demonstrating to him that it is going to be worth his accepting your ask, that you have read his articles on LinkedIn, that you have looked at some of the companies, many companies that he's invested in. Do you use any of those products? What feedback can you give him on any of those products, whether it's on LinkedIn or whether it's any of the other startups that he's invested in? Scott, one other thing very quickly before we flash back to when you were in college, and this relates very much to the way that somebody curates a network, and it's something I know that you've given a lot of thought to, and that is how our young listeners should approach managing their own professional brand. What advice do you have for them as to how to do that well? Sure. And it's interesting when I think about when I graduated from college, the tools and the distractions or the power, we didn't have the phones, we didn't have the social media, we didn't have many things that people have now. And I think the tools at the disposal of young professionals is incredible. But I think you need to be really careful and thoughtful as well. Look, you don't need to dress up in a suit and take a very formal picture and put it on LinkedIn, but try to avoid having a picture that's not as professional. Be mindful of there is a big difference for us. And I think not just because I work at LinkedIn, but how you show up on LinkedIn in an environment like that versus Instagram or I don't know if young people are using Facebook much anymore, but I'm shaking my mind, head. No, <laughs> you know, I, I know when I see my young daughters on TikTok, I know that it's even maybe Instagram is not the thing they're, they're using necessarily. But I think the point here is 
being thoughtful about how you present yourself and stepping in the shoes of a viewer. As much as I don't want people to feel like, oh, you're being judged all the time, you are sending a statement about how you're presenting yourself. And I think that there are countless resources specifically around how to create good, compelling LinkedIn profiles. Again, you don't have to come across as staid and boring and show your passion, show your interests, specifically as it relates to professional pursuits. And I think that also the sharing of content, this idea of how do you contribute to LinkedIn and the feed and the network, it's like you're participating in this network, not just a viewer, but actually a contributor, whether or not you find an article and you read it, you think it's of interest, and you might say, hey, just read this interesting article about remote teletherapy, or which is the company Ginger, I'm an investor in, or the sleep tracking device of Aura, which is being used by the NBA to help them manage during COVID. And again, yes, that's another company I'm involved in, but find your thing that you have interest in, and you don't have to feel like you're being judged just share. And then people may notice that. And then they'll start to see, oh, wow, how are you showing up? What things are you bringing to the table? What insights might I get from watching what you're sharing? Because it's like, oh, that's interesting. And there are people that I follow and people who are voracious readers or who contribute that show up in my feed. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm learning a lot about that person just by what they're sharing. That doesn't mean you have to share every couple of hours, but it's participating in the network is an interesting way to reveal who you are and, and it helps manage and build your emerging professional brand. Scott, let's flash back very quickly to when you were in college. You went to Yale and you majored in history. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Of course. <laughs> no, I did not see the future. Liberal arts to me was something that I I was interested in, and I'm glad that I was able to pursue that and to study history. But what I did see, whether or not it was teammates ahead of me or people that were a year or two or three ahead of me, the path that they had taken, what was accessible to them was, in many cases, things like a lot of people went into jobs like investment banking, or they went into jobs like consulting. Some went down the law school path, some went to the medical school path, some had entry-level positions of marketing or selling. And I think I picked up during school that getting into investment banking was not so much I wanted to become an investment banker, whatever that meant back then in college, but it was, it's a good place to start your career. It's a good place to have a rigorous two years of working hard learning what it means to be a professional or changing your lifestyle, getting up early and working long hours. And for me, I had run my own business in college, which was kind of an entrepreneurial pursuit there. I had done a internship in the Silicon Valley, actually in Cupertino around the corner from Apple with a, a software company that did, ironically enough, software to help you manage your Rolodex, which over time became a very clear connection to LinkedIn. And I was like a marketing intern, or I was just doing projects for the founder. And so the point there was, did I know exactly what I was going to do? No. But I knew that going to a place like an investment bank, I was like, okay, you're going to work really hard. And it may be very challenging work. It's going to be certainly very different than what it's like in college. And it happened to be that I worked for a firm that did mergers and acquisitions for companies in the technology space. And so I had connections to the technology space. I'd worked for a software company, which was great. And I was actually just ready to apply myself. 
And that's the thing that I would say is, especially for new grads, is whether it's a two years or two or three year stint, you're not always going to love everything you're doing. But there is a lot to be learned about yourself, about skills, about industries, about companies. And you know what? It's going to hurt sometimes or it's going to maybe not feel as good. And so I think having the patience, and this is something that I think I see sometimes a little less of, or kind of this, hey, I, I want to be on this fast track, or I have a little bit of impatience about waiting to get to a certain place. And my point is not, hey, you should be miserable in your first job. But it's realization that those things are hard. And entry-level positions are usually pretty rigorous. But the ones, a lot of people I know who've done them, they're learning so much through that process. And even when it hurts, even when it's not enjoyable, when you look back, you will have grown. You have developed skills. You have pushed yourself. You would have proven your grit. And yes, that word is pretty popular these days. And then your ability to have commitment to something for two or three years, that means a lot. To someone like myself, when I look at candidates, I look very differently at someone who's, hey, they have a track record. They have a level of commitment and quote unquote loyalty. They're not bouncing around every six months to new jobs. And look, I get it. It's a little hard sometimes to find your groove. But also, you can have drive and be patient in the same way, right? Which is, you're not going to make it to the top of the organization in the first three years of college. And that's okay. But are you going to meet people? Are you going to start learning things and skills? Are you going to learn from mistakes, you know, it's funny. I remember when I brought my daughter to kindergarten and there was a big sign that said mistakes are magic. I wish they brought that sign out for people just starting their career, right? Because I think there's that sense of like, oh my God, you have to be on the perfect path or you can't be in a, a mindset of mistakes. Stay away from them. You'll never succeed if you make a mistake. That oh couldn't be anything farther from the truth. Scott, so. you are teeing up one of my final questions here. I want to thank you go. for that because here <laughs> we go. Can you share a time in your own professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed at something. And I like to think of failure not as a scarlet letter, but rather as a badge of honor. Because to your point, that is how we learn. That is how we develop resilience, the ability to bounce back. And my goodness, aren't we all experiencing right now a huge challenge in our lives with this pandemic? And if you are the kind of person that just collapses and wants to hide in the corner, that's not a formula for success. And frankly, I mean this very seriously, you need to reach out on an app like Ginger to get some help because we all need to find those ways to bounce back. And sometimes it's our friends, sometimes it's professionals. But the most important thing is, Scott, with respect to a time in your professional life when you struggled, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. How much time do you have? <laughs> I could give you countless examples. And I think it's important to say that because... Sure, I've been able to reach a certain success both in the company I work for and the position that I'm in, and I'm severely grateful for that. That has nothing to do with the amount of mistakes or the challenges I've faced. And I don't mean challenges that I've always 
overcome or powered through, if you will. To be honest, I have challenges and I make mistakes still on a weekly basis. And whether or not it's how I respond to something or how I show up, and those are things that trying to be a more compassionate leader or more patient leader, that's something that is kind of now far into my career. I think that there's trying to find one that's emblematic or super helpful. I mean, I remember I helped start a company. It was probably like within the first 10 years of my career. And I helped start a company and then was part of that. And I actually got laid off from that company after 9-11. And it was a very difficult time in so many ways. And what I did was in my search for my new opportunity, I kind of just, I was contacted by one of the companies in the space that that company was. And so they kind of knew me and they knew the company I'd worked with. And so my experience was directly valuable to them. I learned something in every role that I've ever had. But I think if I look back, I think I was probably just too quick to kind of jump onto the next thing. I wasn't more patient in terms of finding the right fit or the right opportunity for myself. And again, that doesn't mean that that company wasn't fine or I'm, I was grateful to actually have that opportunity. But I, when I reflect back, it was okay. And you know, I had personal circumstances at the time, but I think the part of it is how do you try to ensure or find a way to separate your thoughts and intellectually what you're pursuing from the emotions that you have? And that is something that is such a common theme, whether or not it's how do you show up in business in a way that you're able to manage and harness? I mean, it's great to have emotion. It's great to have passion. It's great to have excitement. It's great to have and be able to inspire and to be inspired. But if you let things bring stress and anxiety to you or if that you react emotionally with a negative lens to it, you're likely not going to be at your best, whether or not it's picking the opportunity that's best for you or showing up in a meeting or kind of responding to someone or a situation that's not going your way or what you were hoping it would be. And so maybe that's more of a broader theme about how do you not be devoid of emotions, but try to try to separate those things and realize and keep perspective that, you know what, we're going to live to fight another day. It's going to be okay. And you don't, don't let it overcome you. Love it. And actually, because I've had 12 years of therapy myself, let me <laughs> let me just share some of what I have learned. And, and I may throw around some fancy terms here. I don't know if, if they'll come to me. but And that is you don't want to be making a decision when you are feeling strong emotion. And I think to Scott's point, when he was let go from the company that he was working at around 9-11, he probably, in a moment of high anxiety, of being unemployed, took a job that had he sat with his emotions, with that anxiety, until they passed. And they do pass so that your uh, prefrontal cortex, part of your brain, the uh, captain of the ship, so to speak, is able to make a thoughtful strategic decision. He may not have taken that job. I'm guessing you don't regret it, but your lessons learned is, is to sit with that emotion, sit with the anxiety, wait until the anxiety passes or settles enough that you can make a really thoughtful strategic decision. And you know what, uh, what I'd add to it, and it's back to your network, leverage your network, use your network, help get perspective by tapping into your network, which requires you to do the work to establish that. 
right? And again, whether or not it's Aunt Jane or Uncle Jack that you may not have known as much growing up, or maybe you did. And the people that care about you, the people that know you, and the people who are ready and willing to invest in you, and those that network and those people, that number will grow over time. And you have that ability to influence that. But using that, and I have this other concept, which I know we're, we're wrapping up, but it's the personal board of advisors, right? Finding people and whether or not those are mentors or whether or not those are people that you can really tap into and say, hey, I would really appreciate if every couple of months or every six months, whatever it is, we could have a conversation and I could share a little bit about what's going on with me. I would love to hear what's going on with you and your family or what's going on with you or if I could be of service or I could, maybe I could do a project for you. But tapping into people and having people that you go to and say, hey, you know what? I'm facing this issue or I'm faced with this question and I would really value your opinion. A lot of people love hearing that. I love, love hearing, hearing that. Yeah. Right? Because they like hearing that more than they say, hey, I need a job. Can you either hire me or help me get a job versus you know what, I'm looking at something, I'm evaluating something It's that's complex or it's challenging. I would really value your opinion. Use those words and I think you will hear a lot more people saying, you know what, I will make some time. It's an approach that's worked well for me. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Scott. Final question. If you could go back to college, back to Yale and do it all over again, But based on the immense wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think some of it is maybe some of the stuff we covered earlier. And ironically, it's part of that post I wrote, which is find great people to pursue and find a way to access and work with great people. Follow those people. Don't worry so much about necessarily your title. Find environments that are growing, that are dynamic that are filled with people that are positive change agents and that people who are have a broader view of the world, not people who are just so fixated on success at all costs. Because again, I think finding those companies that are growing that you feel inspired by and actually putting value in that, also aligning yourself with great people because great people are going to be at great companies. And I think they're going to be helping drive change. They're going to be growing. And with growth comes opportunity. Well, speaking of opportunity, Scott, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to have this caffeinated chat with you today, (laughs) to sit down with me in the Time for Coffee community to learn so much about you and what you've done, what you're doing at LinkedIn, and how you have built your really incredible career. And I want our young listeners to know that Scott has worked at basically three companies his entire career. And that includes the Broadview International, his first job out of school, and then starting his own consulting company, which took some big cojones. I wish we had time for that. (laughs) And working at Yahoo. I think there was one more in the middle there that I may be missing. It was another uh, company, the one that you- You translate, the one that I helped start around the dot-com. Exactly. I'm sorry. Scott's resume, by the way, is like 15 pages long. So I tried to- I don't recommend 15-page resumes. (laughs) 
<laughs> no. It's great oh. because he has a lot of the startups that he's invested in that's in there. It's not just him talking about himself. It's really talking about the amazing enterprises that he's identified and then decided to get behind. But Scott, this has been such a treat for me to get the opportunity to sit down with you. And I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. LinkedIn and your team is so fortunate to have you helping steer that massive ship. Well, thanks so much. It was a pleasure and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.